Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, baby, that brown liquor make my heart go quicker. Welcome to the Leisure Class. I'm your host, Jack Song, a podcast dedicated to turning you on to the good stuff a gathering place for the many kindred spirits I am grateful to call friends. Musicians, writers, artists, chefs, cocktail wizards, and wine geeks, all members of the leisure class. You spend time around a university town pretty much anywhere in this country but especially down here in the south you learn pretty quickly how important college sports are and not just to the students and the alumni but kind of everybody in town oxford mississippi which is home to old miss the university of mississippi is no exception and while football is the true mania down here Baseball is a big one as well. My dear friend, Curtis Wilkie, the journalist who was kind enough to be our first guest on the leisure class, he's a lifelong baseball fan, a crazy diehard Boston Red Sox fan and has been for decades. But as an old Miss alumni and retired professor here, he's held Rebel Baseball season tickets for the last 30 or 40 years. Now, I'm not a baseball guy. I'm more into basketball and football, especially at the college level. But, you know, Curtis has invited me to several games this season. And honestly, you know, any excuse I can find to hang out with him, I'm going to take it. And the stories and the conversations are just too good to pass up. And we have a good time hanging out at the games, sipping a beer, having some hot dogs. And when we arrive at the stadium, which is a beautiful new stadium here, 10,000 people, you got to pass through a gauntlet of his friends and fellow alumni who are all longtime fans and supporters of Ole Miss baseball. And the group is always a really interesting array of people, lawyers, judges, other professors, and kind of the real prominent folks here in Oxford. One Sunday afternoon game this past season, Curtis introduced me to a woman who was a longtime friend of his and was an Ole Miss alumni as well. Her name was Susan. She was about 75 years old, a very attractive woman. And when Curtis mentioned that I was a guitar player and he dropped the Dire Straits words, she smiled at me and asked, do you know who the Flying Burrito Brothers are? (laughs) Now, you know, I'm pretty sure I laughed out loud then too because the Flying Burrito Brothers is just not a name you're going to hear mentioned very often. Beyond maybe some, you know, music nerd types. So she, it really took me by surprise. And I, 
I got to admit, I was pretty impressed too at the same time. And I thought, this is going to get really kind of interesting. And I said, yes, of course I knew the band. And her next question was even more surprising. She asked, were they really as influential as some people say? And I'm really thinking, wow, this is not the conversation I was expecting to have at a baseball game today, but this is pretty cool. And I said, absolutely. They were really the first country rock band, and they influenced a lot of bands and artists that came afterwards. And then she said, well, I used to date Graham Parsons. And my jaw dropped, and I most definitely left out loud, but it was more like in that, oh, my God, you know, way. And I said, really? And she laughed and said, yes, I did. I I was in high school, and Graham was going to Harvard, and she proceeded to tell me about how they met and Graham's attempts to get her to sneak away from home and visit him in Boston. Now, those of you folks who don't know the name, Graham Parsons was a guitar player, singer-songwriter who loved country music. He was a founding member of the Burrito Brothers after leaving the Birds. And Graham is recognized as really sort of ground zero for country rock. He's the man responsible for creating it, bringing real old Nashville-style country and marrying it with rock and roll. He recorded several really influential albums with the Burritos and then had two solo albums of his own that are highly, highly regarded. He hung out with the Stones in France, you know, while they were working on the Exile on Main Street album, and he definitely turned Keith Richards on to country and really kind of added the country vibe to the Stones on that recording. He toured with his band Graham Parsons and the Fallen Angels, which included the great singer Emmy Lou Harris. But his legacy as a musician was not what cemented him as a rock and roll legend. And Susan asked me, do you know what happened when he died? And I nodded and said, I do. Now, Graham, you know, he was a rock and roller. Loved country music, but he was living the rock and roll lifestyle. Hanging out with Keith Richards. One tends to uh, indulge. He battled drug addiction for years into his late 20s. And he died of an overdose in a small motel in Joshua Tree, California. Now, Joshua Tree's out in the it's a national park out in the high desert outside of Los Angeles. Um, it's beautiful. And word was that Graham and his buddies would go out there and do mushrooms or acid and hang out and get high and, you know, just get into the desert vibe. One time, the word is that while he was out there with his longtime friend and road manager, he told his friend that when he died, he wanted to be cremated and his ashes spread in the desert in Joshua Tree. And this was not long before he did actually pass. Now, after he died, his body was being sent back to his family in Louisiana for burial. And his road manager and another friend went to the Los Angeles airport in a hearse, stole the coffin off the tarmac where it was going to be loaded onto an airplane, drove it out to Joshua Tree, doused the coffin in gasoline, and set it on fire. 
Now, I'm not making this up, and it's one of the most rock and roll things I've ever heard. Those are what you call friends. I'm not going to go into the details afterwards. There was a car chase, and you know you can see a bonfire in the desert from quite a distance, so it didn't take long for law enforcement to arrive. But that's not the real part of the story. And that drama really doesn't diminish or overshadow the undeniable influence on American music that Graham Parsons had. My guest today is another guitar player, singer-songwriter, producer, who in my opinion can lay claim to having an equal impact on the course of not just country rock, but someone who helped pave the way for the roots rock and country revival in American popular music of the past few decades. Old country, Americana, new honky-tonk, whatever you want to call it. Pete Anderson's work with Dwight Yoakam took the Bakersfield sound of Buck Owens and ran it through the L.A. punk and rock scene and sold 30 million records, including five number one albums. They had 30 hit singles and won countless Grammys. Pete's gone on to produce dozens of other artists. He's recorded solo albums, and he plays a weekly gig at this fabulous club called the Moose Lodge in Burbank, California, where, I mean, Pete is just a flat-out amazing guitar player. Not only is a country picker, but he can play all genres, and he's fabulous. He's a badass. Now, Pete and I go way back good friends and we always have a great time chatting commiserating and mostly laughing and I've long had a fantasy of jumping in a long white Cadillac convertible with him and Keith Richards to do a road trip knowing it would be the adventure of a lifetime and nobody would fuck with us like I said he's a good friend and the type of friend that I know if I told him that after I'm gone that I needed him to do something he would, in fact, take a hearse, steal my coffin, put it on a Viking boat, push it out into the Pacific Ocean, and set it on fire. When we come back, we're joined by Pete Anderson. I'm Jack Sonny, your host. You're listening to the Leisure Class Podcast, brought to you by Newsweek. It's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Pete, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Are you kidding me? Oh, Anything man. that has leisure in it, I'm down. <laughs> right on, man. Well, you, you've got a lifetime membership in the leisure class for sure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I've been waiting. I'll send you your membership card, all right? Cool. So. <laughs> I'll tell you something scary. I got a gold card from the Musicians Union. Oh. That was scary, bro. Now, is that like, you know, 
you reach a certain age? Is that like getting yeah, your... Yeah, well, it's you, like how many years, it, you know... Oh, how many years you're in. But yeah, I've been in the union for like 35 some years, you know, crazy. Wow. Yeah. I was like, wow. I thought maybe it was like the AARP kind of thing. Well, <laughs> everything is after 35 years. It's all AARP. <laughs> Well, brother, I, like I enough. said, I, you know, we've known each other for a while. We've had some fun together, and I always love talking to you. I do have, you know, um, I do have sort of a question that, that's been rattling around in my brain for a long time, and I don't think we ever really touched on, and I've, I've really enjoyed reading the manuscript stuff that you sent me uh, oh, okay. for your two projects, which was, yeah. I, I didn't know a lot of the history, um, you know, your history, how you and Dwight got together, all that kind right. of thing. But I guess, you know, the real question behind it to me is, how did a guy, a kid, growing up in Detroit, listening to rock and roll and probably a lot of R&B and blues, end up being one of the preeminent forces in country music? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that was a preeminent force, Dude. but... Come on, you re, you you know revitalized and you know brought country music to rock and roll in a lot That's of ways, true. man. Thank you. Um, if you somebody pointed out to me a long time ago, but if you cut the if you cut the United States in half with the Mississippi River, Nashville's in the center. Mm-hmm. So that these guys were like weekend warriors, you know, Conway Twitty, all the cats. They would cut singles. This is like late 60s before the album thing. They would cut two or three sides and then they'd go and play fairs and whatever on the weekends. So Thursday, you know, drive out on Thursday, come home on Sunday, cut Monday, Tuesday, go back and hit fairs. And and so Detroit is definitely, if you look, is within driving range of Nashville. It's kind of part of that uh, on the outer edge of it. Then you have all the white people like my father who came from the south to work in the auto factories. So you had enclaves of honky tonks and working man blues, white people blues. Then you put into the factor that the Grand Ole Opry used to be on television and on the radio. And I can remember getting ready for the Grand Ole Opry on the television um, that was broadcast when I was a kid. And then I remember very clearly, uh, you know, my, well, my dad died when I was five, so the music was of choice in the house. But prior to that, there was country music, and country music was popular music. So even into my teens, you would hear Tiger by the Tail and I Can't Get No Satisfaction on the same station. So you'd get exposed to it. So you were exposed to it without it being stigmatized. Um, It wasn't until my late teens or, or real early 20s that, I, I got the country music stigma where I was like, oh, that's not cool. They're, they're not playing, you know, Dwayne Allman. They're not playing the cool stuff on the guitar. It's, it's kind of it's for old people or whatever. You know, it got stigmatized for a moment. But then Sweethearts of the Rodeo, the birds cut that record. And then, you know, Clarence White and then Graham Parsons. And so they were now part of the peer group that made it cool. And Jesse Ed Davis were like, it's cool again. Right. Because it became guitar centric. And then, so I was guitar centric. My story is this. When you're a little boy growing up, at least probably everywhere, but for me in Michigan and Detroit, 
your parents and your parents' friends would always ask you, what do you want to be when you get big? Well, in 1956, 7, 8, we had three, we had, you know, probably three radio stations and three television stations. So my options, my view of my <laughs> options was, you know, could I be a cowboy? Nah, I can't be. that. That's not real. Can I be a, I could be a sailor. I could be a policeman. I could be uh, a lawyer. Maybe even a lawyer was out of the stretch because I was so blue collar. I never thought of it, but it was somewhere around, you know, a professional guy in the service or, <laughs> And then, because I was artistic, I was like, oh, I might like to be an artist, which my parents cringed. They were like, what? You can't, well, there's no such thing, right? So I'd be like an artist. Well, then one day, I saw Elvis Presley on TV, and I go, I want to be that guy. That's the job I want. Yeah, man. So I have, I, have a, I have a theory that happens with Elvis, Springsteen, Kurt Cobain, these catal- cat- catal- catalytic performers that come every 10 or 12 years Mm -hmm. that inspire a generation. Mine was Elvis. Then the next one was the Beatles and on and on. And so you have, uh, like if I aspire to be Elvis and then it's like, well, I'm not going to quite make Elvis. I'm not going to get there. (laughs) Either I don't have the sidebirds or I don't have the voice or I can't dance. Maybe I could be Elvis's guitar player. Okay, and then say you're not so good at that. Then you go, well, maybe I could be Elvis's bass player. Then you move down the ladder, right? Then, you know, I'm going to get in trouble by saying this, but then you could be his drummer. <laughs> so that's fourth on the list, DJ Fontana. Yeah. And then worst case is like, well, you could hang out with the band and sell T-shirts and drive, <laughs> drive the, the Cadillac. Right, so, set up the gear. Yeah, exactly. So you pick your way down the list. And I, I think that a lot of us that, that gravitated towards music – ended up in that role of working their way through it, you know? Um, and that's what I did. I was like, I wanted to be Elvis Presley as a little boy. And uh, I ended up being Scotty Moore. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. Well, it works. You know, not a bad trade-off. Not at all, man. Not at all. It's, uh, you know, being down here. Well, first of all, I got. I want to ask, you said your dad's from the South. Where whereabouts? He was from. He he was born in Galconda, Illinois, which is the tip of Al- the tip of Illinois, the confluence of the Mississippi and the Missouri River, mm-hmm. um, across the across the river from Paducah, Kentucky, and and Cairo. Got it. Okay. Missouri, Missouri, Cairo, Illinois, Paducah, Kentucky. Well, we've talked. You know, I've talked a lot about since being down here and learning more and more about the musical history of, of the area. It's sort of this mojo triangle, right? Oh my God. New Orleans to Memphis across to Nashville and then back. It's like, that's one triangle. And then I was thinking about it. If you flip that triangle up North, you know, from Nashville, like you're saying, um, Nashville to Detroit and Chicago. Yep. You've got a whole other triangle that, you know, once the, diaspora happened and people moved from the from the south the blues guys moved up to chicago and all that you got a whole nother and then detroit with motown and r&b and all of that got a whole other you know triangle of of musical fertile ground yeah it's unbelievable it really Really, is you you know if you think if you think about motown and you think about uh the economic structure that we have in america today and probably have had for the last, you know, 40 years, how to get ahead in business, you know, without really trying, AKA Mm. Donald Trump or something. (laughs) But that said, um, um, what Barry Gordy accomplished 
is unbelievable. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Black, black, independently owned record company in Detroit. So he wasn't in New York. He wasn't in Chicago. He had no, he had no advantage. Right. No advantage. He wasn't in Nashville. He wasn't in Dallas. He was in Detroit. And nobody came before him. And he wrangled all that talent up, created a whole culture, and his legacy is incredible. Absolutely. It's just incredible. So you have you have that laid out in front of you. We we took it for I don't I don't say we took it for granted. We just you know, we weren't old enough to realize it when we were kids, but he used to send out um I saw the four tops, the, the uh, I saw the Temptations, I saw Martha, De- Martha, everybody but the Supremes because he was having an affair with with Diana, Diana Ross, so he didn't send her. But on the weekends, he would send out all these acts to all the local record hops, and they would come in and spin records, and they would pantomime their record to the kids at the record hop. So I I went to I went to a Catholic high school, all boys, called Notre Dame High School. And they had a big time record hop on Friday night. And so we would, and they'd put up the flyers and they'd go, this week, the, uh, Martha and the Vandellas are going to be, they're going to be in our record <laughs> hop. And we're like, we're kind of like, you know, I don't want to downplay it, but we're kind of like, well, they're like local, they're like our local band. So right, it's like, yeah, right. it's cool. You know? And so it's like, we heard about them. We knew they were Detroit acts, but we had no global picture of music. So they would show up at the record hops. And they'd say, and the guy would have a little announcer and they'd have like a little porta stage that was maybe like a foot high set up. And they'd say, and the guy would, who was spinning records had a little microphone. He'd go, okay, ladies and gentlemen, here's, here's the four tops. I saw the four tops for, before any, before they ever made a record. Oh, wow. They had a song called Cherry Lips. And they came out and they said, here's the four tops. They're new on Motown. They're going to sing their song, Cherry Lips. And they got up on this little stage and started dancing and pantomime the record. And we watched them. But Barry Gordy also had a guy that stood off to the side with a clipboard. And he had things to check off, like how did the kids respond? Did they dance? What dance did they do? What, he had like a bunch of, like a questionnaire that the guy would like survey the crowd. Like doing market research. Exactly. Wow. Now, I mean, take that into consideration in like 1964. Right. I mean, that's brilliant. So, you know, I grew up in that atmosphere, in that world, but country music was, was a player in my life more because of my father and because of the music there. But as I, as I progressed into my teens, it was like totally like Bob Dylan folk and Dylan led me to blues. And once I got to blues, I just, I put on the brakes. That was, I was, that was it. I was going to be BB King. I just was like, I want to be BB King. <laughs> well, you know, man, you can play those licks for sure. But I want to, you know, it just popped into my head thinking about that. That was your early exposure. Um, and, you know, what Barry Gordy did is really a lot similar to, you know, the story of um, Willie Mitchell and, you know, mm-hmm. what happened down here in Memphis, yep. uh, taking local talent and just creating something unheard of. I mean, just yep. amazing. Uh, your interest in that stuff, I got to ask, was that like when you think about influences on your production, like starting to think about what production meant? To recording, I mean, you know, Motown has a very, very specific sound, and yeah. and he was, you know, just create. You know, I'm what's I'm struggling for the word, but he was, you know, 
He was on top of that. There was nothing that was more important to him than what the sound right. was coming out of that little car speaker and on his invented, desktop. What he did, he invented. True. You know, he invented everything what he did because they all played direct back in the day. They were all in direct boxes. Oh, wow. So for our listeners, just so you know, like instead of plugging into amps like, right. you know, we do today or you see them, you know, see bands playing around town, they're plugging directly into the recording board. Right. Which, which creates a very, very dry... Not fun sound. Not for fun sound. It's like for guitar players, for sure. Maybe for bass players, it's okay. But um, yeah. So he was adding things to those. He was controlling it, you know, for one. Mm-hmm. But he created... I think, I think the inspiration might have been because all of them probably at one point or another in their teen years or early 20s worked in a factory. Well, so that, he created it like a little factory. Right. He had, you know, he had his engineers. He had his studio. It was in the basement of a house. Right. And he had this, they called it the sound post that was in the center of the room. It was a direct box in ostensibly. Everybody that had electric instruments plugged into that. He had, you know, three guitar players and each one had his job to do. They were all similar. And Motown is very bass rhythm centric. It's for guitar players, it's just chank, ka-chank, ka-chink, ka-chank. You know, it's just bass rhythm, very bassy rhythm, and very simple. So the bass could be very bubbly, very um, a lot of movement in the bass. That's right. why that's why uh, Jamerson was the guy. I mean, because he created that bubble sound on the bass because he was so busy. He was a busy bass player, but it worked because he didn't have any guitars or keyboards in his way. Right, And then they would run in various vocal groups to sing songs from the various writers that he had. And, you know, the writers would compete to get a cut and then they'd get a song and they'd go, Barry's going to demo our tune. You give it to the musicians. And then you might have Marvin Gaye singing a temp song as a scratch vocal. And the guys didn't never knew. They were like, we don't know what we just cut. We don't know who's doing it. The star, the, the quote stars or whoever they were, they weren't even here. Martha and Va- Martha and the Vandellas just sang, but it might be a Supremes tune. Wow. Okay. So he had this thing going on and it was compartmentalized for me. Production, the question about production. Um, I was a logical kid. I tried to figure logic. I tried to tried to explain things and deal with logic. And I know I used to listen to albums back in the day. And when I had the album cardboard album cover, I would put it over my head so I was in pitch black. And then, and then I would picture myself in the room while they were recording. And I could I would make a picture of me like sitting in the corner up against the wall with my knees drawn up, right? Watching the session go on. Not for any spatial reasons, but it just was like I wanted to be there, right? So mm-hmm. that's when I first got a visual of what I thought it was looking like while I was hearing it. The second was when I started to produce records. Um, I was just very logical about it. I would, you know, the the, 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 Dwight, the first Dwight record, which was the biggest success, I had already done some demos and help some other guys do recording and I had interest in arranging and things of that nature, rhythm section arranging, you know, not writing arranging, but off the cuff, like, you know, the guy in the band that says, Hey, let's play this three times at the end. And let's go back to the intro, that kind of stuff. And, um, so that, that became a big part of me, but the early Dwight thing, I listened to the Ricky Skaggs record 
the very first Ricky Skaggs record after Sugar Hill, where he was on Epic, I think it was, and, you know, like Don't Get Above Your Raisin or something like that. And I just listened to, like, where does the mandolin play? Where does the fiddle play? Where does the steel play? And then I would deal kind of that pattern with the instruments that I had available to me. So in the Dwight band, we had guitar, electric guitar, and fiddle were the fill instruments. That's what we did live. Occasionally, there was a little bit of piano, and occasionally, there was some steel. But basically, it was guitar and fiddle. And so I would part things out as per what I learned on the Ricky Skaggs records. And then it would be like, well, the thing about blues, that's what I tell everybody when I talk about it, is learning to play blues. If you learn to become a good blues player, you will be able to play any type of music because you'll learn how to back up a singer, you'll learn how to play fills, as a guitar player, I'm saying, and you learn how to solo. So you get those three things and you learn, I'm not going to play while the guy's singing. I'm going to back up the guy or, or I got a piano player playing. So I'm going to learn to back him up. Then when, it, when, when he, when he stops singing, I'm going to play a fill because I heard BB King do it. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? So I kind of had those patterns. It was like, don't play while the guy's singing, you know, make the most of your opportunity to play a solo um, and I knew that on the early Dwight records, when I first um, started playing, I got a, there wasn't, the first record didn't have any like super ex- explosive Pete solos. I mean, we had guitars, Cadillacs, and there was a little glimpse of that with some steel licks and stuff. But, but basically I, I operated under the premise that I'm going to have a career and that I'm going to have plenty of chances to play hot licks, but the hot licks have to fit. Right. Yes. I can't force them. So I will get an opportunity to play a hot lick. And it came on the second record because we did Please, Please, Baby and Little Sister, which is like, you know, balls to the wall. It's like, let it go. Boom. So I waited my turn to get an opportunity to play, you know, not to make a name for myself, but it was appropriate for the song. It's always got to be appropriate for the song. Steve Cropper. Right. You know? And he doesn't play anything that doesn't fit the song. And that definitely, like in that deconstruction of like analyzing the Ricky Skaggs album and stuff, that's pretty apparent. Anything that you mentioned, Cropper, anything that the Booker T and the MGs did, it was about that space and finding their time, yep. right? Yep. Your time. Ultimate and taste. Yeah, absolutely. And man, that was, you know, in all the recordings... I've heard you on. That's definitely one of your fortes. You, you you play the. It's sometimes I think about the a lot of the songs that I listen, especially Dwight stuff. I think about it. You know, my band does some of those tunes, and I'm like, I can't play those licks, and those <laughs> and those tunes aren't the same without those licks. So maybe we better do a shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> well, break. What should be that? Break glass, do shuffle. Yeah, exactly. Instead of an axe, it's got shuffle. Um, when in doubt, you know one of the, one of the questions I was talking to uh, another uh, friend of mine who plays guitar, singer songwriter uh, Tom Guerra, one of our other episodes, um, and we were talking about the fact that he recorded his. Solo, he's done a bunch of solo records. He's done them at home. And this last one he recorded during the pandemic. So one of the questions that I had for him, and one of the things that, you know, I want to pose to you was, you know, how do you get 
you couldn't ha- he couldn't have his regular players. Kenny Aronson was was one of them, and you know a couple of the other cats, and they obviously couldn't get in the studio to play together and try to capture that as you know lightning in a bottle that magic that happens whenever you've got a band of great players playing together in a room carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you because at carmax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car you should love your car that's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. One of the, and you know, he talked about the technology and being able to use all the technology that's available today. Right. Um, but that doesn't, you know, that explains sort of, you know, you can send files around the internet and all that stuff and everybody gets their email and everybody records their part. But that doesn't explain how it's possible to create that vibe, that magic. And has that been something that you've been able to do um, in, you know, recording these days? I think I think uh, a big part of um my ability i feel my ability to do it is because i spent so many years not being able to do it by being in the analog world uh, and earlier in the analog world when i was scuffling on the streets just playing demos you had to get it on the floor it was like you might not even let they might not let you overdub it's like get it right or sometimes there was the four we had uh, four guys uh, myself, Gary Morris, John Lee White, and Peter Freiberger, we had a little quartet that we did a lot of demos for a guy, song demos. And they were okay to not so okay. And I can remember <laughs> sitting in the studio, <laughs> cutting these things and looking at the guys and say, hey, don't fucking try anything, man. Let's just play this song once. I don't want to play it again. Please. <laughs> bury, and I, would, I learned how to bury my head into the chart. Right. Like prepare myself, make my notes and bury my head and go, I'm going to get it and get it good. I wasn't trying to cheat anybody. I'm going to give you a, it's going to be right, but you're going to get my utmost concentration because I don't want to play this again. So you go from that element to like the element of like, sort. you know, yes, you want to make magic, but I think you're making magic in smaller increments. If you're producing popular music, you owe it to the artist to be to bring everything that you have to the table to make it as competitive as your competition. So I don't want to send you in the ring and said, oh, you know, I forgot to do this and I forgot to do that. And yeah, you're out of tune on the first chorus and you're up against the Eagles. <laughs> it's like you're screwed. You're, they're not even going to play. They're going to throw in the garbage can. So you owe it to, to, you know, in those Dwight records were always landmark records for me because we were successful. We had unlimited budgets and I would make records in between the Dwight records and I would learn from the Dwight record and bring it to the next record. But the Dwight records were always the ultimate where if I heard about it, I needed an engineer, a mixer, I needed a, an arranger, I needed somebody, I could go get the whoever I wanted. Right. Mm-hmm. And because we were popular, they'd all say, yes, yeah, I'd love to come and do it. I had Bruce Hornsby play on something once, awesome. because of the, not on Dwight, but on another record because of the popularity of the Dwight stuff. So things of that nature. So 
I know we all try to create magic, and I think we, I think in my instance, I was looking to create magic in smaller increments where I was giving musicians freedoms once I had established the framework of the song, bass, drums, you know, acoustic guitar in country music is a, is, is a, a fabric. Uh, you know, you're not really, it's not James Taylor. It's not, it's backbone, but it's not out in front, but bass and drums. And then I would, you know, I have the steel player. I'd be like, well, play. And maybe, you know, let's look for happy accidents, what I would call it, you know, and he might play something. I'm not going to tell him what to play because I don't play steel. And even when I produce guitar players, I very, very, um, careful about picking up a guitar in front of them mm-hmm. okay. or taking the guitar out of their hands. I'll never take the guitar out of their hands. That's demoralizing. Yep. So I would say, well, try this, try that. Or, you know, and I could get particular, you know, like put your finger on the third fret and bend the second, you know, things <laughs> of that nature. And then I could see if they struggled with it, I get out of it. It's like, no, don't do that. I don't want to embarrass. I want them to play what they can play comfortably. And so you get happy accidents that way. Um, And then as far as the real direct part of your question, for me, I've done it so long that I can, you know, uh, with, you know, what's the greatest thing in the world? Pro Tools. What's the worst thing in the world? Pro Tools. (laughs) You know what I mean? So in my hands, Pro Tools is pretty powerful. Because I'm an old head. I'm an old analog. I mean, I went from four track to eight track to 16 track, you know, to early di- early Sony digital machines. I got an opportunity to experience all that from the late 70s and all through the 80s. So it's a very powerful tool for me, and I can do whatever I want. So if I want to make a dead spot on kicking, killing, perfect record but grooving like a son of a bitch – I can do it, but it's only because of my years in the trenches. So you're, you know, you're using the technology as a tool rather than the technology putting you in a, a particular framework or yes. oh, we're just going to put loops together and we're going to do this right, and no, do that. Right. No, okay. Yeah. All right. Use the technology as a tool and not as the rule. There you go. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I like that anyway. a lot. So uh, got got one more for you. And, uh, and then I'll let you have the last word today. All right. Okay. So, right. <laughs> um, is, you know, you have produced dozens and dozens of records with some amazing artists. I mean, you know, Orbison and Buck Owens and obviously all the Dwight stuff and then Michelle shocked. And I mean, the list goes on and on Steve Forbert. Yeah. One of my Mississippi boys. Um, yeah. and is there a, Pete Anderson sound, do you approach it that way as a producer or what's your role? Uh, my role is organization. My role is, is, is an editor. I'm an editor. Mm -hmm. Um, I've classically for the most part worked with songwriters and getting in on the ground floor of the songwriting process and talking about, making like like well in the case of Forbert mm-hmm. Steve Forbert brought 9 out of 10 of the of the most prepared songs I've ever had bring to me ever he's a terrific songwriter absolutely he's a great songwriter absolutely killer yep and i'm really proud of the record we made called the american and me great songs um so 
that was more like being Ansel Adams, you know. I just had to make sure I photographed it. <laughs> I didn't overexpose it. Nice. You know, nice I got the right metaphor, lighting, yeah. you know, got the right op- right time of day to take the photograph. Um, but uh, my challenge has always been that the songwriter would come to me and he'd have his songs and I'd, and they'd be like, this is your best song, whatever it may be. And I'd go, great. When I'm done with it, I want this song to be the 10th song on the record. I want it to be like, should we put this song on the record? Wow, Is it okay. still the best song? So it becomes, we get into sports now, it becomes competitive. <laughs> so we have the songs competing with one another. And we start pushing. And then, you know, the artist has to want to go along with it. Some are like babies and go, it's my song. And it's like, yeah, but it sucks. So you have to be careful. You know, I was a dad at an early age, and that really helped me as a producer. Um, so I make the songs very competitive. And then um, I like to use pretty much the same guys all the time, you know, my guys, okay. and occasionally bring in what I would need, a ringer if I needed this or I needed that. I did a record with Tommy Conwell and the Young Rumblers out of Philadelphia, and they just had had a hit, and I did a record with them. And I wanted to kick their drummer in the ass, so I hired Kenny Aronoff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's like saying pa- passive okay, aggressive much, dude. That's, What's like, that's like saying we're going to do a little sparring today, but I'm bringing in Mike Tyson to spar with you guys. Oh, it was like Kenny came in and put on a show, cut like three songs in like 30 seconds. Yeah, whatever. And the drummer, in the case of the drummer, instead of being demoralized, he was like, "I can do that." Awesome. And he killed it. That's great. He played the seven other songs and buried it. So. Little decisions like that, those are kind of tricks, you know what I'm saying? Those are emotional tricks. As far as a Pete Anderson sound, I'm going to talk to you as the artist about play me some records you like. Play me a record you just like the snare drum sound. Mm -hmm. You know, like I tell people, like I say, you know, I listen to a lot of Shania Twain when I mixed your record. And they go, oh, God, I'm Shania Twain. It's like, dude, those fucking records are perfect. Um, Are you kidding me? That Mutt Lang? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Those records are massively perfect, incredible. Yep. She's this, when he got done with her, she was the sexiest woman on the planet. Her voice was velvet coming out of the speakers, sitting in your lap. It was like, come on. <laughs> so I'm not saying you have to like the songs, but if you can't see that, that's okay. It's like there used to be a thing called Technicolor. How about that? You know? <laughs> so, yeah, man. Anyway, magic. So it's it's different. You know, it's different things where they want to go. You know, um, and how they hear it and how you present it to them. I know this is all kind of blurry talk, but um, I can basically. I mean. I had a friend's record that I did a blues record and I wanted to help him and he, and he made it on his own dialed in all kinds of room sounds, all right. kinds of room sounds that I wouldn't do on the record that I'm doing now for George Dukas, which is more of a contemporary country record in that, but it's like Mavericks, Eagles, a little bit of Buck, a little bit of Merle. It's, it's gritty, but it's, but production wise, it's going to be top notch. Right. Okay. So there's just various tricks, uh, I guess not tricks, but just, um, uh, uh, I don't know. You look over your card catalog, you have a palette that you paint from and you've got all these paints on there. doesn't mean you have to use them all. Right. Oh yeah. Absolutely. You know what? I'm going to paint with Jack today and I'm only going to use black, red, and green. 
something might really great happen, right? Yep. So you kind of, I think it's eliminate as opposed to add to and figure out what you're not going to do and what you are going to do. And that shows itself up as the project progresses where you might go, you know, I was thinking of doing, doing strings on this song and now I'm not going to do strings. I'm going to do accordion and have it play like it's playing strings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things of that nature. I produce, produce, I, I approach producing as a musician. So I am a musician producer. I'm not an engineer producer and I'm not, and I am a little bit of a musicologist, but not like John Hammond senior or somebody. I don't have like 10,000 record collection, but my records, I, the records that I know, I know. Right. That's, that's one thing that I've learned, you know, from you in our other conversations is, you know, your shit brother. In those, in those. So it's, it's, it's that perspective that I think a Pete Anderson project is. I think it's, it's very strongly uh, song intensive. I did the meat puppets. I mean, how I've, always, do do, I've always wondered about that. How do you do Michelle shock Dwight Yoakam and the meat puppets? You know how they're all three songwriters. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, you know, some some stupid A&R guy at a record company, you know, that would go, well, how can you do, you know, you did Michelle Schock and she plays a folk guitar and Kirk, Kirk Kirkwood takes LSD and plays a Les Paul. How can you do that? It's like, fuck you. It's called songwriting, you dumb fuck. There you go. So consequently, it's about songwriting. And I'm a fan of songwriting. I'm I'm a good song doctor, but I believe everybody does what they do left to their own devices. Left of my own devices, I play guitar. Well, Nothing else is happening. I go play the guitar. Now, if you and I were writing a song together, and 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 I wanted to be song doctor to Jack, I might go, "Hey, Jack, that's you know that first chorus that really sounds like a bridge to me. Let's pick up guitars and make it a bridge and see and you know start stirring the pot." You know, um, so I'm good at song doctoring. Good at pointing out maybe weaknesses in perspective on where we're singing this, what person we're in when we're singing the song first or third or whatever. And, uh, and maybe a little bit on lyrics, but basically song melodic structure to make it as good as possible. So that's what I bring to the table. I think as a producer, it's, it's evident, man, that, you know, you're building in all of the things that I've heard you produce, you, you build this really wonderful platform for the song and for the artist to perform that song. And yeah, I, I try, you're, you're absolutely, that's what I try to do. Yeah, yes. man. Well, you're damn good at it. Thank you, bro. All right. So what <laughs> I do have a quick, you know, I came to see y'all in um, Las Vegas when yeah. you were playing with Dwight. I think Tim Godwin, our buddy Tim was, oh, yeah. was with me. And, you know, you talk about how earlier you were talking about, you know, you, you resist it, you know, you put, you're playing the song and you'll have your moment to play, you know, do a little guitar flash stuff. Right. And I got to think that it was probably the tune, uh, long white Cadillac where you guys did on the album. It's actually extended, um, yeah. you know, quite a ways. And I've, I've always heard bang a gong, get it on at the end of that at the end of that tune, I always thought that'd be a great mashup, but, yeah. um, but I believe it was on that song. You played a solo on the outro, man, that was anything 
but country. And I, it, it was like jaw-dropping. I swear, man. And I, oh. I've told people this story before, and I was like, man, he could, Pete Anderson will go toe-to-toe with Eddie Van Halen any fucking day of the week. It was, <laughs> it was blistering, man. And I still, I don't know, how long is that, 25, 30, 30 years ago? Oh, yeah, at least 25. Oh, man. So really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm going to let you have the last word. If you've got a message... Not just for musicians, but, you know, I know you're a deep thinker, man. You and I have had many, many conversations about all sorts of things. From parenthood to grief to the state of the union. So if if you got something that you want to impart to our listeners, have at it. Well, I've been thinking about this for a while. Not not having the last word on your show because I, I want to keep talking to you, but we could talk. We could have, we could have, we, like we could, I know. Well, we'll do it. We'll do a part two <laughs> but, for sure, man. But, uh, but what I've been talking about lately is because of, because of the despair in the world today, I want to say that I do have hope in America. Um, and I'll explain this to you. I think that there's three things that are undeniable that that will not be stopped, and it is because we live in a, we live in an unfettered capitalistic society. I unfortunately, in the last couple of years, realized that our democracy is thinly veiled fascism. That the corporations, when when you have guys standing outside of the Senate chamber giving checks to senators as as donations to their campaign funds and then these guys take the money from their campaign funds and use it for personal use and never get arrested or sanctioned for it it's basically bought and paid for and and Joe Manchin couldn't be any more an example of this to name names but marijuana alternative energy and mexican americans i think have a big opportunity to change us. And what I'll say is if the Democrats can appeal to the Mexican American community, the majority of them are family oriented, moralistic people, hardworking blue collar workers. They do occasionally vote Republican. I know that Bush got some of them, but all the interests that we have um, in progressive agendas fit Mexican Americans. And they're going to be the biggest portion of our population before too long. Marijuana because and and I grew up in the marijuana era and I bemoan marijuana because it deadened a lot of my buds a lot of my pals that would have gone on to do super great things but I don't think it should be criminalized but the revenue from marijuana as long as it can be controlled for for education and medical like it is in Colorado I think the the windfall profits from the from the taxation is going to be gigantic and we're on the verge of having it federally taking away the state-run uh, state tax and adding a federal tax and making it uh, legal all over the United States. And then third is alternative energy. So 
the auto comp the auto industry will turn its back on the oil industry because the people want battery cars. Battery cars are coming faster than I ever thought. They're coming faster than than when when CDs replace cassettes. Man, there was a, a you know on the Super Bowl commercials there was a all electric truck. All electric. So you cars. know they're and, you know they're not fooling around, man. No, and here's the deal. I'll tell you something, and I'll tip you on this. Um, I think that. The battery car is a stopgap um, because they want to get their R&D paid back. Like, that's how they operate. You know, it's like Nike would invent a tennis shoe, and then they would say, we spent, you know, a million dollars inventing this tennis shoe. We're not going to tell you about the next tennis shoe, which is better than this one, until we get our <laughs> money back for this one. Okay. Well, the ba- after the battery car is the solar car. They will paint the car with solar, and you'll just get in it, and you'll drive. And it's that's the end of it. There's a highway in Europe that is solar. The highway is solar. And you charge your car as you drive on it for a mile. Wow. It's just, it's so, so if we live in an unfettered capitalistic society, which means for your listeners, unfettered capitalism is, I don't care how you made the money. I don't care if you poisoned the groundwater. I don't care if you killed people. Did you make money? And the answer is yes, then it's like, good, go ahead, have fun at it. I'm glad you made money. We live in an unfettered capitalistic society, and I don't see that changing, unfortunately. But because of that, they're going to go where the dollar goes. Well, the dollar is going to go to marijuana, Mexican families, and solar-powered, battery-powered cars and solar energy. That has a chance of saving us. So I'm hoping that as I age, I see this trend continuing. That's my last word. All right, Pete. Oh, and also, oh. also, if oh, <laughs> yes, yes, P.S. If you dream, dream big. There you go, brother. That's the truth. Thank you very much, man. And hey, when you start to run for office, you let me know. I, I'm still registered in California. I think. So. I'll just be one of those. I'm, I'm going to put you. I'll put you up there, and we'll just talk on the phone at night and say, "Try this." <laughs> there you go. I'll be a ghost in the wind. Pete, thank you so much for doing this today. Uh, uh, it's always a pleasure. And yeah, we can continue this anytime you All want. Right. Thanks, All right, my brother. brother. All right. I'll keep you posted. Be well. Bye, buddy. Talk Bye-bye. to you. Big thanks to Pete Anderson for coming by and joining the leisure class today. Brought to you by Newsweek.